Okay. Well, today for the sermon is something sort of different. Um, you might have noticed the title is Get Out Now, Part 2. <laughs> um, what I'm doing today, I'm going to preach the second half of last week's sermon. Uh, you know, you, normally, if you've been here for a while, you know that the normal practice is I'll preach through a book of the Bible. And so in a sense, every week is a sequel to the week before because we're just moving through scriptures. Uh, but generally, we also you know, try to have a self-contained understanding of you know, what is this sermon today and we're moving through the passages. But today is, is unique. I think it's the first time I've ever done this. Explicitly broken one sermon into two parts. Um, but I feel like I had to do it because this topic and this text was just so significant and also so complicated, it's impossible to deal with it all in just one sermon. So, for the sake of everyone, whether you were here last week or not, let me recap briefly what we covered last week in Revelation chapter 18. So we're in a series in Revelation, we're working through the Bible, and then Revelation chapter 18 is where we were last week. So, we read this chapter, and this chapter tells about the fall of a place called Babylon. Now, Babylon was an ancient city. It was a literal ancient city. It was the capital of an empire that was wicked and sinful. And because of this throughout time, then Babylon became a symbol for all societies that were wicked and sinful. So in a sense, Babylon is every sinful society that's ever existed. So ancient, literal Babylon was Babylon, but so was ancient Rome in the first century, the time the New Testament was written. So is America today. Babylon is just a symbol for the world, sinful human society that's opposed to God. And in chapter 18 of Revelation, we read about the destruction of Babylon, that ultimately God is saying this world with all of its sinful systems is going to be destroyed. And the challenging thing that we saw last week as we actually looked at what is the sin for which Babylon is condemned, we saw the main sin for which they're condemned is the pursuit of luxury. Sometimes in Scripture it's called the love of money. Sometimes it's called greed or covetousness. We often call it materialism. In chapter 18 it's called luxury, the pursuit of luxury. And this is the chief sin in Revelation 18 for which Babylon is condemned. That they were going after luxury. They were pursuing it at, at, irregardless of the cost. As an example, in in chapter 18, verse 12, we found this list of of things that people in the Roman Empire, the Babylon of of the time the New New Testament was written, we find this list of things that they were pursuing after, these things that they had to have, these luxury goods, to make them happy. So in Revelation 18, 12, it says, you know, that they chased after gold and silver and jewels and pearls fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, that is, human souls. Okay, so this is the list of of the finer things in life at that time. The luxuries that rich people had to have in order to be happy, in order to have satisfaction. Okay, and we have these sort of lists today, too, the things that we think we have to have to be happy. On our list, we still have things like gold and silver and jewels, but we've added the latest smartphone and a big TV and a new game system or a nice car or a big house 
or the latest fashions, or the tastiest foods. The list goes on and on. See, just like Babylon, just like every sinful society, we have this endless list of luxuries that we pursue, thinking if we just had these things, then we would be happy. And the shocking thing is, this was the great sin for which Babylon was condemned, the pursuit of luxury. So why? Why? And we asked this last week, why? What's so bad about having nice things? We saw three big reasons from the passage last week. One is that pursuing luxury keeps you from pursuing Jesus. Okay, so Jesus himself said, no man can serve two masters. The image is like of a football field. You've got Jesus at one end, and you've got luxury and money at the other end, and you're at the 50-yard line. To move towards one is to move away from the other. You can't go after both at the same time. And so this pursuit of luxury is bad because it steals our hearts and our affections away from God. Another thing we saw, though, is that pursuing luxury is sinful because it exploits natural resources. We saw on this list one of the things that they pursued was ivory. In fact, they pursued it so hard that they made the Syrian elephant extinct. It didn't matter because I had to have this thing. It doesn't matter what it does to creation. I've got to have it, and that's what happens today, too. In our pursuits of luxury and having to have all of these things, we are harvesting natural resources at an unbelievable rate, and we're transforming them into goods, and we're using those goods, and we're throwing them away because we just have to have it. It doesn't matter that we're doing damage to God's good creation, even some damage that is irreversible. But even worse than this, we saw pursuing luxury exploits people, too. Now, in the Roman Empire, luxury was built on the backs of slaves. And you saw that in the list. The last good that they all had to have was slaves. And we don't have slaves today. You better not. But many of the goods that we consume are made by people who live in poverty, who are working in conditions that you or I would never tolerate for ourselves the luxury that we enjoy more than we'd like to admit is built on the backs of the exploitation of people. Okay? So, so we saw last week, this is how the world works, how it has always worked, that Satan tempts people to pursue luxury, to find our satisfaction in stuff, and as we do that, three things happen. We pursue luxury and we, we, uh, we, we drift away from God. We pursue luxury, and in doing that, we destroy God's creation, and and we pursue luxury, and in doing that, we exploit people. So what are we, Christians, supposed to do in light of that? Well, that was the key verse last week, Revelation 18.4, where God gives us this command, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We're supposed to come out to be different, to not participate in these same sins, to not do what everyone else is doing. Okay? So he says, come out. Not, not meaning, of course, like build a spaceship and go to the moon and just get away from here. But come out of the ways of the world. Don't act the same way. Don't engage in the same things. Don't be seduced by luxury. Don't exploit creation. Don't exploit people. And that's where we left it last week. So what, we're going to, what I want to talk about today is how. How do we do this? We know that we need to come out. None of us want to be involved in this. We want to be different, but how do we do it? Like, Do we all have to be Amish? 
do we have to uh, live off the grid, grow our own food, make our own clothes? What is this? How do we do this? How do we come out from the world? Now, this is a huge topic. It's a complicated issue. I'm certainly not going to cover every nuance or, or, or thing here. If, if you have questions, there's things that arise as I'm talking today, and you'd love to get more input on this, we do have these green sheets that you can fill out questions that are in your pew or also at the back. You drop them in that question box underneath the question mark in the back, and I'll try my best to answer them throughout the week. But today I just want to try to give an answer that's big enough to get us started. So how do we come out of the world? My answer comes in two steps, and the order matters. The order matters. How do we come out from the world? First, change your heart. Then, change your lifestyle. First step is the most important. It's the most frequently ignored. To come out from the world, first, change your heart. If you've got a Bible, you should... Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be in here for a little while. Colossians chapter 2. If you're anything like me, when you start to think about these issues or you hear someone laying this out here, how all the stuff that we buy is exploiting creation, it's exploiting people. If you're like me, the first thing that you ask is, what are the rules I'm supposed to follow? Right? What do I have to do? I don't want to do this, so what do I do? I crave a list. Give me a set of ethical consumer guidelines. Right? What can I do? What am I not supposed to do? What can I buy? What shouldn't I buy? Where should I shop? Who should I boycott? Okay, bottom line, I want some rules so I know I'm not participating in this sin. And this approach has the appearance of wisdom but it doesn't actually work. You can't start with rules. You have to start with the heart. Look in Colossians 2, verse 20, and see what Paul says. Colossians 2, 20. If you, sorry, if with Christ you died, the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You hear what he's saying here? Apparently in the church in Colossae, the, the Colossian church to which this letter was written, There were people who were advocating for a very strict lifestyle. They had all these rules. You see them there in verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these rules that said these are the things that you're supposed to avoid. This is what it means to be a real Christian. You've got to not do these things. And they were strict rules. Paul says in verse 23, they are uh, promoting asceticism and severity to the body. The idea was, if the rules are strict enough, if they inflict enough pain on me, then they must be good rules that will really help me to stop sinning. One way that people did this in ancient times was with something called a hair shirt. Okay, these are shirts that are made out of coarse animal hair. 
They're designed to be uncomfortable. The point is to be uncomfortable. Okay? And, and you'd wear these hair shirts close to your skin, underneath your other clothing, so that you would always be chafing. Okay? And, and this was meant to be an antidote against the sin of pursuing luxury. The idea being that if you're constantly uncomfortable from wearing this hair shirt, you're always going to be reminded of, of, of this discomfort, and it's going to keep you from getting soft. It's going to keep you from indulging in these uh, you know, pleasures of the world. And so throughout history, you know, various monks and other kind of harsh sects would wear these hair shirts to try to keep them from sinning. Um, in modern days, this practice has largely been abandoned. But there are still plenty of hair shirt equivalents out there. Okay? These things, these rules that we create to try to make our lives uncomfortable in hopes that being uncomfortable will keep us from sin. For example, you could choose to follow the practice of only buying certified, organic, locally sourced, non-GMO foods. And that will make your grocery shopping so uncomfortable that it might keep you from sinning and overindulging in the things that you buy. You could choose to give up shopping at Walmart. You could choose to only purchase things that are made in America. And this will make your consumption so uncomfortable, so difficult, so expensive, that it could curtail your indulgence. You could resolve to buy only secondhand clothes or to make your own clothes. You could sell your car and decide to walk everywhere or ride your bike. There are all sorts of ways in which you can make your life more difficult in order to try to beat this sin. And some of these sound like good ideas. Some of them may be good ideas. But here's the point. None of them will work if you don't change your heart first. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2.23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The real battle, the first battle that has to be fought is for the heart. If you don't win that one, the most severe rules in the universe will not help you. The picture that's helped me this week is to think of myself as a giant boat. I, I do weird things, okay? But I encourage you to join with it. So think of yourself as a giant boat. You're an ocean liner. You're going full steam in one direction. You're pursuing luxury. You don't want to do that anymore. You want to go the other direction. So you think, here's what I'll do. I'll just hire a bunch of tugboats to come alongside, throw their ropes on my bow, and start pulling me in the other direction while I keep chugging full steam ahead this way. That's what it's like to just add all these rules onto your life while your heart is still desiring a certain sin. Okay, you, you can throw all the tugboats you want on there. You're not turning that boat around. You can throw all the rules that you want into your life. It's not going to change the direction of your life. There's one really easy way to turn the boat around. You know what it is? Grab the steering wheel and spin it. That's your heart. That's your heart. Get your heart to change, to change the direction of your life, the orientation of your desires, and everything else will fall into place. Tugboats are never going to beat the ocean liner. 
So how do we do that? There's an important hint a few verses later in Colossians 3, 5. Chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Did you catch that? So covetousness, that's what we're calling the pursuit of luxury. He says it's idolatry. The pursuit of more stuff is a form of idolatry. This means at some level, when we're chasing after stuff, what we're really saying is, I think that is going to do for me what only God can do for me. You may not bow down and light incense to your car, but you really, like when you're not feeling good and you need some boost, you just go out there and you polish that car. You think, well, at least I have this. Okay, the, the pursuit of luxury is, is we're treating our stuff as if it can provide for us the only, only the things that God can provide. We, we chase after things to provide happiness, to, to fill that hole in our hearts, to give us identity and meaning and deep satisfaction. That's idolatry. And so if you have a problem with, with, with lusting after things, with chasing after things, if you have a problem with covetousness, your real problem is that you're worshiping something besides God. And until you repent of those beliefs you have zero chance of changing your behavior. You can throw some tugboats on the line, but it's not going to fix it. If you really want to change, you need to change your heart. You need to stop worshiping things and start worshiping God. If you look back a few verses, Colossians 3, verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you really want to change your heart, you do it by setting your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So you stop looking for stuff to provide your satisfaction, and you start looking to Jesus. This is all about believing the gospel, folks. Do you really believe that Jesus is the source of life. If you want to change your heart, what you've got to do is you've got to repent. You've got to talk to God and say to God, just honestly, I have been an idolater. I've been trusting in things to do what only you can do. God, I've been looking to my car to fill this hole in my heart. I've been looking to clothes to provide identity and meaning for me. I've been looking to technology to give me significance. You admit that to God. You say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? And then you believe. Then you believe. By faith, you ask God to do what only He can do. Say, I've been trusting in these things. It hasn't been working. I keep having to buy more and more. I think if I just buy this new phone, then I will never have to buy another phone again because I'll be happy. But two years later, I have to buy another phone. It doesn't work. Now, these things aren't working. I, I repent and I believe in you. Lord, would you satisfy my heart? Would you give me significance and meaning and identity that these things can't bring? And as you do that, as you believe the gospel, you will be amazed at how quickly your ship turns around. As God satisfies you, you won't care anymore about all these things 
that previously were your life. To use a different illustration, I really like Skittles. It's dangerous saying that because like, somebody's going like, to go buy me a bag of Skittles now and give it to me. I really like Skittles. Um, I have eaten dangerous amounts of Skittles in one sitting in the past. Okay? If I start eating them, I'll just keep eating them. But you know when I don't want to eat Skittles? Right after I've had an amazing steak dinner. I'm satisfied. Not hung. Why would I want Skittles when I've had that? That's what it's like to encounter God and to be deeply satisfied with Him. The hunger is gone. You don't need more things. You have everything you need because you believe the gospel. Now, really practically, just trying to be practical today. What this means, you know, boots on the ground, is before you go out of here and make any sort of resolution to, you know, only buy certified fair trade coffee or or whatever, before you make any resolution like that, make the first resolution to meet with Jesus every morning in a time of prayer and scripture reading. Make it a resolution to come to Sunday worship every week you are physically able. Make those sorts of resolutions that prioritize your relationship with Jesus because that's what turns the boat around. That's what satisfies the hunger in your soul. When you're satisfied in the morning with the love of God, you don't need to go to Amazon.com and see what the gold box deal of day is. You don't need it. So if you want to come out from the world and not participate in this great sin, the first thing you have to do is start with the heart. But don't stop there. After you change your heart, then change your lifestyle. If you want to come out from the world, it can't only be an internal change. It must begin with an internal change, but you can't stop there. An internal change must manifest itself in an outward change if it's going to mean anything. The command was, come out from the world, be different. If we're not actually any different, nothing has happened. We must really change. So when you have a change of heart, it must be inevitably followed by a change in lifestyle. And at this point in the sermon, there's two ways that we could go about this. Um, One, now having our hearts renewed, we could try, you know, Filled by the Holy Spirit, we could try to come up with a list of luxury goods that need to be avoided and things that are okay for Christians to do. Okay, so we could try. We could kind of brainstorm this together and say, you know, what, all right, what brands of car are okay for Christians to drive? And then what's too expensive for a Christian? Um, how many square feet in your house, you know, is the line beyond which you're, you're sinning? Um, you know, which companies should we support? Which ones shouldn't we support? We could try that. I don't really want to because I don't think it works. And even beyond that, I don't think it's possible. You know, this world is just too complicated. The economy is too complicated. Our lives are too complicated. I don't think there's any way to come up with a list that is the perfect list applicable to every single person in every situation. So what do I want to do? is instead of that, try to end by giving you a set of principles. Principles I hope are specific enough that they have teeth 
that they really mean something, but also general enough that you have the freedom and the responsibility to work out the details between you and God. So what do we have to do? What are some practical things to change our lifestyle and come out from the world? I've got three, and they go together. The first one is, reclaim the definition of the word need. I mentioned last week that it was dangerous to use the word luxury because our definition of luxury is anything people who have more money than me spend their money on. I only spend my money on necessities. I only spend my money on reasonable things. So the problem is our definition of need is screwed up. And it's probably true that back in your life when you had less money, you had a better definition of need. You needed food and clothing, a place to live. But over time what happens is you get more money, you get used to a certain lifestyle, and, and then you start to put all these things that formerly were luxuries into the category of, I can't live without this. And when we do this, we are blending right in with the world. It happens subtly over time to all of us. One of my favorite songs is by Sarah Groves. It's called All I Need. Probably be better to play it for you. Let me just read you the lyrics. And you tell me, as I read this, if you recognize yourself in this story. Newly married, new apartments. All our furniture was saved from the dump. Yes, dear, maybe we can afford a trash can next month. All I need is my love for you and a seat for two. New baby, new life. We'll teach him to speak French. We've got no money, so we'll make it all ourselves. I'll make the curtains and you make the shelves. All I need is a power saw and a new sewing machine. Honey, this house needs a little something. That bare mantle doesn't look so good. Someone told me of a man who makes animals from driftwood. All I need is your monthly bonus for a wooden walrus. Honey, the coal balls are coming over. This house needs some renovations. Just a wall or two, just a little room and a few new decorations. All I need is a sectional and a satellite TV and dark wood cabinets that were custom built for me and a painting by that guy that paints with his feet. That's all I need for now. That's how it goes, right? Start out with nothing. All you need is love. That's another song, right? And then you get some more money and say, well, now I need a TV. Now I need a house, I need a nice house. I need custom decorations. Without even notice it, we, we just start to take these luxuries and include them in the category of necessities, just like the world does. So if we're going to come out from the world and be truly different, the first thing we have to do is reclaim a definition of need. You know, a simple definition would just be a need is a need. Right? <laughs> just got to think through that a little bit. Maybe a little more helpfully, I would suggest a need is something that is absolutely essential for accomplishing the mission God has given you. A need is something that is absolutely essential for accomplishing the mission God has given you. It's a very different way of thinking about needs than what the world says. The world says a need is something that you, kind of, that you want and you can afford. But this starts not with your desires and what you want, but with God and His calling on your life. What is the mission that God has given you? What is the task, the responsibilities that He has given to you? Think through that. Think through what the mission is and then think, what do I need to accomplish that mission? Whatever fits in that category is a need. Everything else is a luxury. 
As an example, if you're a parent, one of your missions given by God is to take care of your family, which means you're going to need food for them, you're going to need clothing for them, you need a place for them to live, you're going to need a, you're going to need a job to provide for that probably, you're probably going to need a car to get to that job, and so on and so on, right? There's all sorts of needs that flow out of that mission of having to raise children. Or maybe God's given you the mission of hospitality. You have the mission given by God of welcoming people into your home and giving them refreshment and blessing and encouragement. Now, if that's your mission, you're going to need some specific things, right? You'll need a house that's big enough to have a space for people to come and stay. You're probably going to need some nice decorations to make it a a welcoming and inviting place that refreshes folks. You're probably going to need more food than other people because you're always feeding other people who come to visit. You might need a nicer washing machine because you're always cleaning sheets. There's all sorts of things that would flow out of that mission specific, specific to the calling God has given you. So we're not trying to make a list and say, here's luxury goods, here's not. Like if you, if you sleep in silk pajamas, you're a pagan, but if you have cotton pajamas, you're a Christian. We're saying, no, what is the calling God has put on your life? What is the mission he's given you? Now, whatever you need to accomplish that mission, that's what you need. But if you don't need it for the mission, then that's a luxury. So the first thing you have to do to change your lifestyle is figure out what your needs are. And then, number two, keep only what you really need. Keep only what you really need. Hiking the Appalachian Trail is a dream for many people. Not for me, but for many. It's over 2,000 miles long from Georgia to Maine. Those who do it take between five to seven months of hiking to complete it. Every year, thousands of people try. About one in four actually complete it. Do you want to know what the most common mistake is of people who hike the Appalachian Trail? It's a quote from their website. The most predictable mistake through hikers make when they start is carrying too much stuff. Why would that be a big deal? Well, you're walking for 2,000 miles. You're going to carry everything that you have with you that whole time. If you have a long journey, if you take anything you don't absolutely need, it's only going to make it harder. And that's true for life as well. We are all on a journey. God has given each of us a mission. He's given us tasks to accomplish, things to do. And the most predictable mistake that we all make is carrying too much stuff. Instead of traveling light and staying focused, we fill our packs with all the stuff that weighs us down, with cars and boats and gadgets and decorations and clothes that we never wear. Hikers keep only what they need, and so should we. Hikers labor over ounces. When they're trying to figure out what sleeping bag to take with them, they say, what is the smallest possible sleeping bag I can take with me that will do the job? We don't think like that usually. We go house hunting. We don't say, what is the smallest possible house that I can have that will let me accomplish the mission God has given me? No. The realtor says, for just a little bit more, let me show you what you could get into. When hikers realize they don't need anything, when they, when they, maybe they've taken something for a while and they realize, no, this is not necessary. I don't need it. They get rid of it. When we realize that we don't need anything anymore, 
We put it in the basement. And when our basement gets full, we put it in the attic. When the attic gets full, we rent someone else's garage to put it in. And if that's not enough, we buy a bigger house that has more room for us to store all the stuff that we don't need. It's crazy. Jesus once told a story about a man like this who had so much stuff he had to build bigger barns to hold all of his stuff. And what he said to that man was, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Having more stuff is not better. That's the mindset of a hoarder, not the mindset of a hiker. The world has the mindset of a hoarder. More stuff is better. But to come out from the world, God is calling us to think like a hiker. Figure out your mission. What do you absolutely need? Keep only that. And the last step, give away the rest. Give away the rest. There is no better thing that you can do to find freedom from money and possessions and the lust for more than to voluntarily and regularly give your money and possessions away. There's a wonderful phrase that I heard years ago, and I think about it often. The only antidote to an increasing standard of living is an increasing standard of giving. The more you get, the more you need to give away. The world says that when you get more money, that's a chance for you to meet your quote-unquote needs. The Christian way is, when you get more money, it's a chance for you to meet more of other people's real needs. The world says, when you get more, it's more money, it's, it's time to get more for yourself. The Christian way is, when you get more money, it's time to give more away. John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. It's a great example of this. In 1731, he was convicted that he needed to be more responsible with money. So he made a budget and he determined he needed 28 pounds a year in order to live. So that first year of living on a budget, he spent 28 pounds. And he had an income, though, of 30 pounds, which meant he had two pounds left over that he was able to give away. Now, the next year, his income doubled to 60 pounds. But his standard of living did not increase. After all, he lived just fine on 28 last year. Nothing has changed. He could still live fine on 28, so he did. But that year, he was able to give away 32 pounds. The third year, his income increased again to 90 pounds a year, but he had no reason to change his lifestyle. So he lived again on 28 pounds, and this year he was able to give away 62 pounds. And he continued that habit for the rest of his life. The more money he made, the more he gave away, and he made a lot of money. John Wesley wrote books that were very popular. In the equivalent of today's dollars, he would probably have gotten about $160,000 a year from royalties. But he lived on the equivalent of $20,000 a year. Now, he was a single guy. Taking care of family wasn't part of his mission. But still, $20,000 a year. Can you imagine a more countercultural thing to do than this? To get a raise or a bonus or a sudden windfall and not to change your standard of living one bit, but instead to just say, awesome. This means I can give away even more this year. Who does that? 
Well, if we did that, we would really stand out from the world. We would shine like spotlights in a dark and selfish culture. We would truly be different. And so when God says in Revelation 18.4, to kind of bring it all together here, when he says, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, this is what he's talking about, this sort of lifestyle. Renouncing a lifestyle of luxury, this lifestyle that pulls you away from God, that exploits creation, exploits other people. But instead, first of all, to change your heart. To get so satisfied with Jesus that you no longer have this hunger for more stuff. And then, from that place of deep satisfaction, to change your lifestyle. To do the hard work of figuring out, what is my mission? What do I need? To keep only what you need and to joyfully give away the rest. That is how you come out from the world. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, please. Help me. Help me to to go from here, not just move on to the next passage and the next message, but to internalize this deeply, to go through my life, to go through my house, to get rid of things, to stop buying things that I don't need, to get satisfied with you. I don't want to be a part of the world. I don't want to be a victim of Satan's lies anymore. I want the freedom of simplicity and generosity. I want to pray that for these people too. Would you help us all to to be free from the bondage of the lust for more, to be content, and then to be generous. Lord, we want to be different. Would you empower us to be different? In the name of Jesus, amen.